Chapter 14 of Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Denoya, Somerset, New Jersey. Meridiana, The Adventures of Three Englishmen and Three Russians in South Africa, by Jules Verne. Translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Chapter 14. A Declaration of War. All pretext for quarrelling now being removed, the colonel and Strux, somewhat rancorous at heart, recommenced their joint labours. About five miles to the left of the gap made by the conflagration rose an eminence which would serve as the vertex of a new triangle. When the requisite observations were complete, the caravan set off across the burnt forest. The road was paved with embers, the soil was still burning, and here and there smouldering stumps of trees, while hot steam rose around. In many places lay the blackened carcasses of animals which had been unable to make their escape. Wreaths of smoke gave evidence that the fire was not yet extinct, and might still be rekindled by the wind. Had the flames burst out again, the caravan must inevitably have been destroyed. Toward the middle of the day, however, it was safely encamped at the foot of the hill. Here was a mess of rock which seemed to have been arranged by the hand of man. It was a kind of crumlock, a surprising erection to find in that locality, resembling the structures attributed to the druids, and which ever furnished fresh interest to the archaeologist. The most credible suggestion was that it must be the remains of some primitive African altar. The two young astronomers and Sir John Murray wished to visit the fantastic construction, and, accompanied by the bushman, they ascended the slope. They were not above twenty paces from the cromlech when a man, hitherto concealed behind one of the massy stones at the base, appeared for a moment, and, descending the hill, stole quickly away into the thicket that had been untouched by the fire. The momentary glance was enough for the bushman. A makololo, he cried, and rushed after the native. Sir John followed, and both in vain searched the wood. The native, knowing the short paths, had escaped where the most experienced hunter could not have traced him. When the incident was related to Colonel Everest, he sent for Mokum, and asked him who the man was, what was he doing, and why he had followed him. "'He is a Makololo, Colonel,' replied Mokum. "'He belongs to one of the northern tribes that haunt the affluence of the Zambezi. Not only is he an enemy of us Mokismen, but he is a plunderer of all who venture into the country. He was spying on us, and we shall be lucky if we have not cause to regret that we couldn't get hold of him.' "'But what have we to fear from a band of robbers?' asked the colonel. "'Are not our numbers sufficient to resist them?' "'At present, yes,' replied the bushman. "'But in the north these tribes are more frequent, and it's difficult to avoid them. "'If this Makololo is a spy, as I suspect, "'he will not fail in putting several hundred of these robbers on our track. "'And then, colonel, I would not give a farthing for all your triangles.' "'The colonel was vexed. "'He knew that the bushman was not the man to exaggerate danger, "'and that all he said ought to be duly weighed. "'The intentions of the native were certainly suspicious.' His sudden appearance and immediate flight showed that he was caught deliberately spying. No doubt he would announce the approach of the commission to the tribes of the north. There was, however, no help for it. The caravan must continue its march with extra precautions. On the 17th of August, the astronomers completed their 22nd triangle, and with it the third degree of the meridian. Finding by the map that the village of Kolobeng was about a hundred miles to the northeast, they resolved to turn thither for a few days' rest. For nearly six months they had no communication with the civilized world, and at Kolobeng, an important village and missionary station, they would probably hear news from Europe, besides being able to reprovision the caravan. The remarkable cromlech was at once chosen as the landmark when subsequent operations should commence, and the colonel gave the signal for departure. With no further incident, the caravan reached Kolobang on the 22nd. The village was merely a mass of native huts, the uniformity of which was relieved by the depot of the missionaries who had settled there. Formerly called Le Pelolet, it is marked on some maps Le Tuberuca. Here Dr. Livingstone stayed for some months in 1843 to learn the habits of the Bakwanas, or Bakuans as they are more generally termed in this part of the country. 
With all hospitality, the missionaries received the Europeans, and put every available resource at their disposal. Livingstone's house was still to be seen, sacked and ruined, as when visited by Baldwin. The Boers had not spared it in their incursion of 1852. All eagerly asked for news from Europe, but the curiosity could not be immediately satisfied, as no courier had reached the mission in the last six months. But in about a week the principal said they expected journals and dispatches, since they had already heard of the arrival of the carrier on the banks of the upper Zambezi. A week was just the period that the astronomers desired for their rest, and all except Palander, who constantly revised his calculations, passed the time in complete farniente. The stern Matthew Strux held himself aloof from his English colleagues, and Emery and Zorn took many walks in the neighborhood. The firmest friendship united these two, and they believed that nothing could break the closeness of their sympathy. On the 30th, the eagerly expected messenger arrived. He was a native of Kilmaine, a town by the delta of the Zambezi. A merchantman from the Mauritius, trading in gum and ivory, had landed on that coast early in July, and delivered the dispatches for the missionaries. The papers were dated two months back, for the native had taken four weeks to ascend the Zambezi. On the arrival of the messenger, the principal of the mission had handed to Colonel Everest a bundle of European newspapers, chiefly the Times, the Daily News, and the Journal des Debats. The intelligence they contained had, under the circumstances, a special importance, and produced an unexpected emotion among the entire party. The members of the commission were altogether in the chief room of the mission. Colonel Everest drew out the daily news of the 13th of May, with the intention of reading aloud to his colleagues. Scarcely had he glanced at the first leading article, when his brow contracted, and the paper trembled in his hand. In a few moments he recovered his usual composure. "'What does the paper say, Colonel?' asked Sir John. "'It is grave news, gentlemen,' said the Colonel, "'that I have to communicate.' He kept the paper in his hand, and his colleagues waited eagerly for him to speak. To the surprise of all, he rose, and, advancing to Matthew Strux, said, before communicating the intelligence conveyed in this paper, I should wish to make an observation to you. I am ready to hear anything you may say, said Strux, much astonished. The colonel then said solemnly, Mr. Strux, hitherto there has been between us a rivalry more personal than scientific, which has rendered our cooperation in the common cause somewhat difficult. This, I believe, is to be attributed by the fact that there being two of us at the head of the expedition. To avoid antagonism, there should be only one chief to every enterprise. You agree with me, do you not? Strux bowed in assent. The colonel went on. This position, unpleasant for each of us, must, through recent circumstances, now be changed. First, sir, let me say that I esteem you highly as your position in the scientific world demands. I beg you to believe that I regret all that has passed between us. These words were uttered with great dignity, even with pride. There was no humiliation in the voluntary apology, so nobly expressed, and neither Strux nor his colleagues could guess his motive. Perhaps the Russian, not having the same incentive, was not equally disposed to forget any personal resentment. However, mastering his ill-feeling, he replied, With you, Colonel, I think that no rivalry on our part should be permitted to injure the scientific work with which we are entrusted. I likewise hold you in the esteem that your talents deserve, and in the future I will do all in my power to efface any personality from our relations. But you spoke of a change. I do not understand. You will soon be made to understand, Mr. Strux, replied the Colonel, with a touch of sadness in his tone. But first, give me your hand. Here it is, rejoined Strux, with a slight hesitation. Without another word, the astronomers joined hand. Now you are friends, cried Sir John. Alas, no, said the colonel, dropping the Russian's hand. Henceforth we are enemies, separated by an abyss which must keep us apart even on the territory of science. Then, turning to his colleagues, he added, Gentlemen, war is declared between England and Russia. See, the news is conveyed by these English, French, and Russian newspapers. And in truth, the war of 1854 had begun. The English, with their allies the French and the Turks, were fighting before Sebastopol, and the eastern question was being submitted to the ordeal of a naval conflict on the Black Sea. The colonel's words felt like a thunderbolt. The English and Russians, with their strong sentiment of nationality, started to their feet. 
Those three words, war is declared, were enough. They were no longer companions united in a common labor, but already eyed one another as avowed antagonists. Such is the influence of these national duels on the heart of man. An instinctive impulse had divided the Europeans, Nicholas Palander himself yielding to the feeling. Emery and Zorn alone regarded each other with more of sadness than animosity, and regretted that they had not shaken hands before Colonel Everest's communication. No further conversation ensued. Exchanging bows, English and Russians retired. This novel situation, although it would not interrupt the survey, would render its continuation more difficult. For the interest of its country, each party desired to pursue the operation. But the measurements must be carried along two different meridians. In a formal interview subsequently arranged between the chiefs, it was decided by lot that the Russians should continue the meridian already begun, while the English should choose an arc of sixty or eighty miles to the west, and united to the first by a series of auxiliary triangles. They would then continue their survey as far as lat twenty degrees. All these arrangements were made without any outbreak. Personal rivalry was swallowed up by national feeling, and the colonel and Strux did not exchange an uncivil word, but kept within the strictest limits of politeness. The caravan was equally divided, each party preserving its own stores. The steamboat fell by lot to the Russians. Mokwum, especially attached to Sir John, followed the English caravan. The pioneer, equally experienced, headed the Russians. Each party retained its instruments and one of the registers. On the 31st of August, the commission divided. The English cordially thanked the missionaries for their kind hospitality, and started first to connect their last station with their new meridian. If, before their departure, any one had entered the privacy of the inner room, he would have seen Emery grasping the hand of Zorn, once his friend, but now, by the will of their majesties of the Queen of England and the Tsar of Russia, no longer friend, but foe. End of chapter 14